Hey, one more thing before you go. Has the political environment dehumanized people? Has society created the need to draw a line in the sand? Can policy be put into place over politics? We're going to answer these questions and more when we talk to a grassroots activist and trainer who delves deeper into all of these subjects. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About the Polarization of America. My guest today is Nick Reed. He holds degrees in psychology and philosophy. He's worked in radio, politics, business, education, and nonprofit. He's an entrepreneur, a speaker, an activist, and a trainer. He presently works at an organization where he focuses on depolarizing America, helping people talk with those they disagree with and inspire bottom-up solutions to our local problems. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. So that's that's an impressive background. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up outside Houston, Texas, in a town called Katy, actually. It was a small, smaller suburb outside of the behemoth, and I had a great childhood. It was somewhat country, somewhat city, um, and then the urban sprawl, Houston kind of, well, swallowed it. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I, I came from uh, I come from Colorado, and I came from Colorado Springs, and when I lived there and grew up there as a kid, uh, the city was large for me as a kid, but it was relatively small for the rest of the area, and then we moved to Woodland Park, which was 35 miles up in the mountains from Colorado Springs, and there are 17 miles, pardon me, up in the mountains to Colorado, uh, above Colorado Springs, and it was a small mountain town of about 6,000 people, and we appreciated that. It was it was good. Um, I love the mountains. My parent, my grandparents lived in Golden for a while. Oh, we used to go up there and visit them. Beautiful place. Love Golden. Um, I miss the trees here in Arizona. I mean, they have trees here, but these are desert trees. <laughs> they're not Colorado trees. <laughs> oh, they're more brush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like the mountains. These are baby mountains. Uh, we had big mountains in Colorado. These are baby mountains. So you got a pretty impressive background. And um, I know you went to school. Uh, you went to school in Texas, I'm assuming. That's right. I finished in Texas. Texas State University. It was in San Marcos. It's a, it's a college town. Really enjoyed it. It was a, it's a great place to be. They have a river. I don't know what you guys do in Arizona in the summers, but in Texas to beat the heat, we do something called floating the river. And so almost every single weekend we would go down to the San Marcos river, which just ran smack right through campus and grab an inner tube, maybe some beers. And for maybe even two hours, you, you would just ride on the, on the water and you can't do anything. It's almost like a modern day meditation. Uh, sounds like fun, actually. That's, yeah, Arizona. We just go inside where the air conditioning is. Rain is rain has become far and few between the rainstorms. <laughs> That's what I've heard. So, what interested you in like psychology and philosophy? I wasn't very academically motivated in my youth, and I just scraped by by the skin of my teeth in high school. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to study anything, it's got to be something I'm I'm interested in. Actually, the first year I was in college, I was at a university in Virginia known for um, getting people in medical school. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. You know, and my pediatrician growing up, I used to shadow him and he was so funny and got to interact with people all day. And I thought, man, I like to be funny. I like to interact with people. I'm going to be a doctor. Well, I got into genetics class and realized that's not a doctor. That's a comedian. <laughs> 
I'm in the wrong class. No, but really, but really, um, it was a, a clash of philosophies. I felt it was a really heavy on the the nature versus the nurture side in in uh, the, the medical world that I was studying, and I didn't like feeling like you're a you're a victim of your genes or whatever. And so I moved into psychology, where I thought things could. You, you had a little bit more active role. Yeah, more more flexibility in understanding when the the basis of something. I'm assuming. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it changes by the day. We're on the DSM forty five now, or whatever their their diagnostical statistical manual updates by the hour. <laughs> you know, it's very. It, it, my my uh, niece is a psychiatrist. And uh, she's a child psychiatrist, actually, and um, it always amazed me that she went into that field because she, I, I think she was, she seemed like she was in school for like 12 years, I mean, forever in a day just to get into psychology. But she graduated, she works for a place, uh, starting in California, but now she works up in Seattle, I believe. But she loves what she does, and she gets a diverse group of, she works with just kids. And she um, she has the opportunity to help improve and change kids' lives that are having challenges. Oh, I bet it's amazing. There's a yes. psychoanalyst who is a surfer buddy of mine, and he tells me. I asked him what it was like to do his work, and he said it was like getting to live a thousand lives through his patients. It was oh, that intimate. I, I thought, amazing. wow, that's incredible. That's pretty cool, actually. Well, you you now work as a trainer for a grassroots space for activists organization. So can you help me understand what that is? Sure. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that uh, has for the last two years in my role, at least as a trainer have been working with con citizens who want to make a difference and who don't know how to make a difference. They feel the only thing they can do is to keep voting and paying their taxes and hope that everything works out. And so we help people with the knowledge and the tools and the skills that they need to go out and, and play a more active role about the issues that they care about. And so when I was in a trainer, I would meet with people from all walks of life who had amazing stories and were facing real barriers and challenges. And we would help, help them learn how to overcome those and remove those barriers to their happiness and, and success. And usually those were well-intended uh, policy barriers created in the name of safety or something else that ended up uh, getting in the way. One example is there was a, you know what a doula is? It's like a midwife. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. I think it, well, just think of a midwife who attends to birth and maybe even in the homes. And there were midwives in Montana who had got together and decided that there should be a, a, a limit to how many midwives there can be. And so they went to the government and said, we should set up a license and it should cost $10,000 or whatever. And you should have to go through all this training and, uh, you know, just for quality and safety. And so what happened is there, the demand grew and midwives can't meet all that demand, but of course their schedules are all full, but anybody who wants to be able to make a difference and is called in that way now has a really significant tolls in front of them to pay, you know, to, to get involved. And likewise, I believe there was another woman who's a great example, Melanie Armstrong in Mississippi, and she wanted to braid hair. And she was told that uh, she didn't have permission. And 
also had to pay $10,000 and 3,000 hours in classes. To uh, braid hair? To braid hair. And hair braiding's not even in the in the program. Wow. You know, for wigology. So there is there is a degree to which business has uh, got caught up in looking for favors and handouts and and kind of anti-competitive practices. And so that's that's one type of customer that that we would work with. Now that's some those are some obstacles that I think I've put into place that uh, like you said some people don't have the ability to uh, work with or overcome. And uh, so I applaud you. That's an interesting uh, perspective that you were able to get some people help. It's all them. Yeah, it's got to be self. Got to be self satisfying. It, it can be. It really can be if the feedback comes back to us of how it worked out. So now you you are a content creator and a speaker for American for Prosperity Foundation. Can you help me understand what that is? Sure. So I'm shifting a little bit more towards culture culture change than helping people break barriers and policy change. And so some of the some of the ideas behind our work. Uh, empowering people have they have their their roots in a different space. They're not in politics and policy. You know, politics and policy flow downstream of culture, and so the culture is is a space where we want to get involved. And right now, um, there are some narratives, a lot of false narratives and false choices that people have that uh, we. I want to engage in, and I want to engage in that the public dialogue to start to start presenting some new possibilities to people that can lead to some more nuanced thinking and some better solutions than some of the bad choices that I think people are faced with. Feel some of the stuff that you do with. I think you had mentioned to me something about polarization. Can you can you help me to understand what polarization means? Sure. So I mean, for that from that perspective, I absolutely. So if you, if you look at what's going on today, you got Floyd, you have COVID, and people are you have the the maskers and the anti-maskers, and then you have, uh, you know the the Black Lives Matter and maybe their opponent, whoever that is, and then there's always some kind of polarization, and it doesn't matter what the topic of the day is. People pick camps, sides. There's a fence. And it's getting more and more extreme. And I think that we think like everybody wants to be able to connect. Everybody wants to be relatable, right? It's a human need of ours. And now we've reached a point where this this phenomenon, this thing that's happening, that's dividing our country and our culture is now dividing our dinner tables and our friendships. People are unfriending each other, not just on Facebook, but in real life. You know, and parents don't want their kids to grow up and marry somebody who voted for the other guy. It's not just legislators, but legislators too. I mean, they there are legislators who many who refuse to sign on to legislation they agree with if it was introduced by somebody of the other team. And people who will sign on to bad legislation if it was proposed by, you know, one of their buddies. And so this is this is the 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 situation in polarization today, or at least the problem of it as it relates to this, is we have a culture today that's that's got to the point where we don't just disagree. Like we don't just think that the other person who thinks differently is, is wrong or incorrect. We think that the other person who thinks differently than us is is actually a bad person, is evil, lazy, stupid, something like that. 
And this is dehumanization. And this is a different phenomenon than just people disagree. I agree. I agree with that. Um, when you look at the negativity that's been floating around, it amazes me how, I mean, I, I'm, I'm giving away my age here. I'm going into my seventh decade. So I'm not a young guy. I've been around. Um, I grew up in the sixties. I grew up during the civil rights stuff in the sixties. I grew up in the seventies. I, I, I watched transformation take place. I watched things take place, but in the middle of all that, and as I grew up, we were able to have conversations not arguments. We were able to have, okay, you may be a Republican, I'm a Democrat, you may be a Libertarian, uh, I'm a Republican, you may be this, you may be that. You're, we were able to have conversations. It was not a a fight. It was not a like a, the line in the sand I spoke about earlier. And what you just said, it's not, if you're on this side, then I don't want anything to do with you. And if you're on that side, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And you're correct. I've, I've watched people uh, friends of mine, for example, 30-year friends of mine, 40-year friends of mine that are kind of going, I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook because I just don't agree with what you're saying. And it's... it's um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's it comes to a point that it's... What's that like for you? You know, it, it, uh, it disappoints me because some of these individuals, and not very many of them, but, you know, some of them we still have conversations. We respect each other's opinions. But we grew up in an environment that that we're all about the same age. So we grew up in an environment that we were taught to respect other people's opinions. And, you know, you can have an opinion and in, in, in not be a bad person. You can have a, a way that you believe and not be a bad person. Now, there are some... So overcoming that in somebody that's been a friend for 30 or 40 years, you is difficult actually. I mean, you stop mm. thinking about it. You go, you go, you know, I used to work the street with you. I got you into a job. I helped you to go through school. And now you won't talk to me because I believe one way and you believe another way. And to mm. me that it's over the top. I mean, kind of hurts my feelings a little bit, to be honest. And Ouch. Yeah, man. You a know, 30 year friend, 30 years yeah. and three decades. That's a lot of history. That's a lot of memories. Big time. So when you stop and think about that, I think that, and unfortunately, I think that um, society today, as you said earlier, has become more of a draw line in the sand, and you either on that side or you're on this side. And the more that that fosters, the more negativity is created, where before we used to be able to work together, even in Congress. And, and this is, obviously, this is a political statement, but it's not a one side or the other political statement. In Congress today, we have an issue where you you said earlier, it, even if something's good for the for the overall, if something's good for the public, overall, whether it's brought up by a Republican or brought up by a Democrat or a Libertarian or the Green Party or the Tea Party, if it is good for everybody and it's a benefit to America in some form or another, everybody shelves it. If it if they don't, well, you did it, so it's going on the shelf. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to discuss it. I'm not going to pass it. Why? Well, because you brought it to me. It's not because, well, there's something bad in it, something we need to change, something we could work around, something we could readapt, something we can evolve from this, we can make amendments to. It's because you brought it to me, and I'm not going to do it. And that's sad. It's just sad. 
It is. There's a, there's a lot of policy, good policies that don't get enacted as a, as a result of that stalemate, the shutdown, the gridlock, all this language that the rhetoric that we hear around it. And people are people are frustrated for good reason. It's a really it's a really complicated subject, actually. I know I love to make things simple, but there are some things that um, you can oversimplify, and I think this is one of them. There's a lot of dimensions and layers to this. There's the institutional component of polarization. There's the media component of the polarization. There's the individual and and develop you know developmental psychology aspect of this. And then there's just personality traits and there's generational issues. There's, there's lots of uh, ways to approach this. How do, how do you think society got here? How, how do you think we got to this point? If I'm not going too deep. How deep do you want to go? <laughs> this, is, this is a conversation, buddy. We can take it whatever. <laughs> it's very fluid. Wherever it takes us, it takes us. In the Parthiad, they called the people that they were trying to eradicate from the face of the earth, what? Cockroaches. In war, soldiers have a very specific label and title for people that they have to kill. And they're not called people. They're called what? Oh, targets. Targets, enemy combatants, a very specific name. In capital cases, like we have here in Texas, if you're on death row, in trial... There's a very consistent phenomenon that happens over and over and over, this pattern. The defending attorney is always trying to paint the accused to the jury as a, as a human. And the prosecuting attorney, their job is to try and show this person as a monster. Why? Well, each one wants to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Yeah. But it's also, it's very hard to, to sentence to death a human, it's easy to kill a monster. I used to work in, work in, I think I volunteered at the, uh, some hotline for domestic violence, doing some advocacy. And I remember this call that I got, and I'm giving you a whole bunch of examples here, but I promise you this is going to go to how did we get here? It's all good. I remember this call from a mother who, was calling about her daughter who was in an abusive relationship. And she asked me, she said, how can someone say some of these things to another person? And I remember asking myself the question, what if we're not always seeing another person? And if you take this object, throw it on the ground and stomp on it, right? You know, a pencil or a camera, like you won't think of yourself as, you know, a murderer or doing something wrong to somebody. It's just an object. It doesn't have any intrinsic value of its own. It's just got use value. People do, right? Objects. If we were to treat people as objects, then a whole lot more dehumanization is possible and all the things that result from it because of the nature of an object is totally different. And so how did we get here, I think is as much a psychological question as it is like a historical question. Really, I don't know if we've been this divided probably since the Civil War, right? And that's historically, like racially, we've been very divided 
in during the Civil War area and all the way through through desegregation. Today, while we're seeing some racial issues, racial issues in the subject of depolarization are too superficial. When you look at a human being by color and see someone who's less than human, what you're talking about is not racism. You're talking about dehumanization in the context of race, but it's it's not just happening in race. The phenomenon is happening and been happening for a very, very long time. And today, where we are is we've reached another level of extreme. Well, why is that? Well, if you look at when a human being is born, right, we're the most helpless creature on the face of the earth, right? We are born into, into a relationship to our world as dependency. Mother is our world, and we are dependent on mother for food, for water, for protection, for everything. And then we learn to crawl and to walk and to talk and to take care of ourselves, and we become more and more independent, right? Well, the psychological research shows that when you get to a certain level of independence, you have to learn to relate to the world in a new way. This is what happens for an individual. You have to learn to relate to the world through your independence instead of your dependence. You're no longer just in that symbiosis with mother. Mother's out of the picture. You're your own person. So you have to learn how to relate where, where there is no codependency. And Carl Jung described this as what he called a tension of opposites, right? And that's where you're able to see somebody else's viewpoint or the other person is not a threat to your to your core and your center. You don't lose yourself by being presented with another. But some people, or for almost everybody, when you come of age, there is a reckoning. Like you're confronted with your difference, you know. And there's myths about this. The creation myth and the Abrahamic religions of Islam and Judaism and Christianity talk about the primordial man recognizing his difference and covering himself up and trying to figure out what to do about that. When we, are con when we reach independence, if we don't learn to bridge that world, we can end up in a prison of isolation with an alienated from the world, right? And when you're, when you're alienated from the world, then you experience conflict. If, I'm con if you're standing in front of an alien, right? In perception, like, you know, a Democrat or Republican or whatever, but your experience is an alien, then you experience so much otherness, there's a conflict. And the way to get rid of that conflict is to try and get rid of the other. This is one way that people do it. So if I get rid of you or your viewpoint, right, or you adopt my ideology or whatever, then there's no experience of conflict because there's no you. In my experience, it's just me. It's just my viewpoint. Right. Or I can go the other way. I don't want to think about things myself freely. It's too difficult, uh, too much conflicting information out there. So I'm just going to adopt, you know, somebody else's ideologies or somebody else's ideas or a belief system or join the party or something. Right. And I lose myself in that. Now there's no conflict because there's no me in my experience. Right. Well, the problem is, is you never get rid of the other and you never get rid of yourself. So it rears its ugly head. And you build a tolerance to it like a drug. And so you always need a greater and greater escape. And so it becomes more and more intense because now I need more people to adopt my viewpoint and they have to adopt it more wholeheartedly or I need to lose myself more. But eventually you can't get the same effect. And so it becomes very extreme and very polarized. And that's where we are today. That's 
that's an amazing analogy. That um, that helped me understand quite a bit, actually. It made me rethink a whole lot of things over my my past, including my career. I was a domestic violence investigator for quite some time, actually. So when you brought that up, I can resonate with some of that because of the stories. And the I, I wish I would have spoken to you way back then, because um, in regard to that is the I can see that correlation now. And then when I look back on my time then. And in that environment, in seeing those incidences, that makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense today, actually. Uh, I can see that wholeheartedly. I've never looked at it from that side. Yeah, we're not just, it's not just domestic violence where people get objectified. It's everyday it's conversations. It's you. It's me. We're, we're doing it on a daily basis. To some degree, you can't get away from it. I, yeah, I see, you see that today in everything, in politics, and especially in politics lately. You see it in politics every day. And, and that that polarization, well, it boils down to like losing friends on Facebook. It just, it's not just Facebook, because obviously if they defriended me on Facebook, it's not the end of the world. But at the same time, you know, they've been visiting down to Arizona. They never stop and said hi, say, then they go back to Colorado. And that's what hurt my feelings. And it's like all because of thought patterns. You think this way, you th I think this way. I respect what you think, but you want me to think like you. And because I don't, you don't respect me. Is that, is that kind of kind of how that kind of fits together a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, in the only way that I can do what I need to do in order to resolve this conflict through this really bad strategy is I have to dehumanize you. I can't intellectually or otherwise, dominate you unless you're an object because I know it's wrong and it doesn't feel good. And so if I see myself in you in any part, then I, I can't do that because it's doing it to me. But I can't to an object, right? Right. That, so, yeah. so I have to. You have to be an object. And the more object you are, the easier it is. Like when you're running for office or let's say that you see – you know, someone who's running for office and they're talking about their opponent and they show a picture of their opponent. Are they showing their opponent in their best light? Is that their best picture or even close to it? Absolutely not. They're showing their opponent in, in the worst light possible. Well, that is every single day dehumanization, right? And I don't, I don't want to be on like such a big dehumanization kick here, but the killer is if you're in the company of a bunch of objects, you're in the company of no one. You're alone. And we are starting to draw smaller and smaller circles around ourselves just to give you the stakes until there's no one left but us. And that's a lonely, lonely world where you're just surrounded by objects. And even if you were to succeed in your, and I say you, I mean my and everybody's crusade to change everybody's minds to be just like me. Well, what that would actually result in is also another boring, lonely world too. It's a boring, lonely world surrounded by a bunch of yous. What would you have to contribute? How would you learn and grow from other people? Like what would you have, how would you share? There's no communion with others if there's no other. It takes others to have communion, to have a shared experience. And that's what adds to and enriches this, this life. Unless you want to be, I am legend, the last man here, you know. 
Well, that's why, you know, <laughs> that's it. Flashed uh, Will Smith. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, or, or Smith from The Matrix, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, it, it, um, that's an, a very interesting analogy because we are, we all are, are unique, but we all need each other in order to succeed in society. Yes. There's these, it's almost like two contra, seemingly contradictory truths, right? Do you, are these, these type of things solved through policy or are they solved through, how are they solved? How, how do we, how do we make change? How do we encourage change to be able to come to a mutually agreeable um, center, I guess? Sure. Let's talk about it at the easiest level, at the, the political level, and then we'll move down to the social, and then maybe we'll even talk about things that people can do for personal reflection. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. So at the political level, it's, it's all about politics. Everybody's talking about who the candidate is and you know their hair and how they look and how they talk and walk and act and their character and stuff, but nobody's actually talking about the policies that they are uh, actually going to implement. This is a radically different conversation when you start talking like that. See, right now, everyone's line in the sand is around partisan politics and parties. No one's talking about policies. No one's even thinking about the policies. In fact, most people only know of about one issue and where maybe half of the candidates that they know their names stand on that, that issue. So Frederick Douglass is known for a quote where he said, I will unite with anyone to do right and nobody to do wrong. And this statement embodies a new possibility. You see, if you look deep enough, you will always find disagreement with everyone because we're all 100% unique people. But if you also look deep enough, it's also true that you will find some commonality. You'll find something that you agree on in the vast array of issues and policies that we have today. And so right now, instead of saying, I'm not going to work with anyone on anything unless they agree with me on everything, we're able to move forward and create real, make a difference. If we can say, I will work with you on that which we both agree on, the commonality, why not? So let's say that uh, George Soros and Charles Koch agreed on some issue, some obscure issue like uh, free speech, right? Should they not work together just because they disagree on every single other issue to advance something good? This is the question that we need to ask today because it's creating this giant gridlock. And maybe you and I agree on free speech and maybe two other people agree on criminal justice and two other people agree on immigration and two other people agree on another issue. Now we're all advancing causes and making the world a better place instead of just complaining. The next issue, if we move down to the next to the social level, what people can do, let me ask you this. When we have conversations, when you think about conversations where you've had a disagreement, talking about politics with people, are people disagreeing with you about things that you say you're going to walk out the door and do to alleviate homelessness or whatever? No. Typically not. No, it's usually about agreeing with somebody else. In it's their all about, yes, it's all about how the president is whether or not they should make everybody do this or that solution. It's all about whether or not Congress should spend our tax dollars to do it this way. It's all top down. The conversation 
today could shift to bottom up. No one's criticizing you for what you're going to walk out the door and do to make a difference. That's a totally different conversation. In fact, it'll probably inspire people a significant degree. And and I don't know if people understand the the gravity of this. It seems very simple. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just talk to people about what I can do about this issue and everything will go great. You've no idea how important this is. 500 people in Washington, D.C. cannot solve all the problems of 340 million people across a continent that they've never met and don't know anything about. It's just logistics. If everyone is standing around saying what the president should do is, what Congress should do is, you know what the mayor should do is, okay, the schools need to do this. No one's doing anything. This is extremely disempowering. This leads to one size fits all solutions that creates problems for, solves problems for 3% and creates problems for 97, which creates more bitterness and complaining. And you, they don't have the niche knowledge about the community and the issue to even come up with a good solution. And it's not sustainable because it's done through, how do things get done through government? It's the stick and the carrot. It is, which has its place, but the stick and the carrot are also something you build a tolerance to if you don't have your own reason for doing it. If you're not doing this, like if you're not driving the speed limit because you want to protect children, you're driving the speed limit because you don't want to get a ticket, okay? That con- If you don't have your own reason, eventually there's not a hot enough fire or a sweet enough carrot to keep you doing things. It's just human nature. So eventually you just, other things take priority. And so we've got to have our own reason. So we, in order to, to move anything forward, we've got to start meeting at least at bare minimum, meeting top-down control with bottom-up solutions. So in, in regard to, to doing that, I mean, that's um, an outstanding approach, actually. And in order to do that, what, what do you suggest? What do we do? Do we... Do we get together and start talking commonalities between people and then take that to the next level? How does, how does that get implemented? Let me give you um, four or five different concrete examples of ways that people can create change from the bottom up. So to start, I would think, what is one thing that you want to see change in this world more than anything else? I would start there. Something that you're motivated enough to see a change through or actually even think about bottom up because most people don't and just that's why we end up complaining. Once you've got that, right, then you can start thinking about your strategy. So one thing, let me ask you this. Do you know what the ice bucket challenge was about? Yeah, it was the ALS to raise money for ALS awareness. Yeah. And that was an extremely successful campaign. Do you know what the pink ribbon stands for? Um, yeah, obviously for cancer research yeah, and to promoting cancer, cancer research. Yeah. So what are, these are examples of what are called public awareness campaigns, which is a fancy word for creative ways of raising awareness about an issue. Most issues remain problems when they remain in the dark. When they are brought into the light, it generates a large amount of human compassion and, and motivation to, to resolve it, especially if it's connected to how people impact people. So most people say, well, you know what the government should do is, or you know what the president should do? 
But if this issue, all it took was for people to know it exists in order to create momentum, that's an in- incredibly uh, empowering thought and something that's in everybody's hands to do, to create awareness. And it's one of many, many things that you can do. I'll give you another example. So um, during uh, Corona and COVID, right, you've got services that are delivering things to your door. It's a business. If you want to make a podcast and raise awareness, you've got your microphone, your headphones, the microphone stand, the computer, the software, the the squadcast that's publishing all this. All everything in your pocket, everything that you're wearing, everything in this room in my room was once the idea that somebody had of how they could improve the lives of others through product or service. There are ways that you can create change through creating products and services that is also a really effective way of solving problems from the bottom up. Most of the problems that that we have could be at least addressed partially by some kind of product or service. That's another thing that people can start thinking about. So what product or service could help advance the cause that I care about? And how could I create that? That's two. Makes sense so far. Three. Most social issues, especially, and economic, are exacerbated by the absence of healthy and strong community. They are, and and most of the solutions that we get that don't work are poor substitutes for things that were once done by community. Nobody knows their neighbors. Nobody trusts the people who live in proximity to them all day, every single day, every single year of their lives. And when there's a problem and a dog barks and people, rather than go knock on their neighbor's door, will call the police to go knock on their door and ask them to make their dog quiet. And sometimes they, they cut the jugular cords, right? They, they're put in a, police are put in a very difficult position because they're doing things that are outside of their, their, first of all, their capacity to do all this stuff that community used to do, but also outside of their scope and the proper use of force. Their police are called for everything all the time. And there are good people, capable people standing by in a community doing absolutely nothing while a completely unnatural and unnaturally high concentration of trauma and responsibility is placed on a very small percentage of the population. And there are natural consequences to that as well. So where, how could having stronger and healthier communities how would that actually affect the cause of the issue that I care about? That's another question that people can ask. And then if there are barrier, like actual policy barriers to you creating this change, like there's a barrier to you being that interior designer or being that barber or whatever it is, starting that food truck, then you can, from the bottom up, also create change from within that institution. You can supplement what's already there you can reform what's already there. You can innovate where there's nothing there. And these are all things that you can do beyond voting and paying your taxes. There are citizens petition initiatives. You can have 
uh, I think in most cities, they have like a threshold. If you get a certain percentage of signatures, then it goes up for vote. They either make a decision on it or it goes up for vote. Here in Austin, it's 5% or something. There's You can go and speak and give public testimony. You can uh, it, go and talk to your congressman and write them. There's all sorts of things you can do besides just voting and paying your taxes. And most of those we get into in depth in uh, our workshops. That's a really interesting approach. We have a problem here in our neighborhood. It's a brand new neighborhood. We're new. We, we, uh, 2016, we moved into this neighborhood. There were five houses. We were the fifth house. It is now like 85 houses. And then they built a whole nother side to this on the other side of the streets, same, same size down the street from us. They started a, we, somebody was driving by one day and saw this big sign up there where they're going to put a waste transfer station in there. So we, as a community started, people started talking and we started building a community of individuals without five different communities that this is affected by. And we created a Facebook account and we created a voice. I created a podcast for it actually to help deliver information. And then we did a petition and we signed a petition um, to stop it. We've talked to the uh, the planners and et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. But now it's kind of at a stalemate because they keep putting it off. The government keeps putting off the decision and putting off the decision. And now that's kind of falling the interest in trying to keep up that pace is now falling down. So in regard to being an activist in something like that, what would you recommend that people do? Not just from my position uh, in general, because I know other political things that people have tried to do through, through their representative or through their congressman or congresswoman um, that they kind of get dead end. They kind of run into a stalemate. How do you, how do you open those doors? Let me ask you this. Has there been another time in your life when something's been really important to you and you've had to rely on somebody else in order to get that done and you started losing motivation? What did you do? What worked? Well, from my personal perspective, I, I found another way around. I'm a very, pers- I, I, I'm, well, my wife calls me stubborn, but I call it perseverance. Um, I kind of found another way around and I found a loophole around. I, I worked around it to come up with a solution um, that seemed to fit for my situation. Gotcha. Can I ask a question here, just a clarifying question sure. about the situation? So there and where you are in Arizona, you did a citizen's petition and it. do you have a citizen's petition process where if you reach a certain threshold, then they, they have to look at it or put it up for vote? Uh, we did. And we got to that threshold and uh, that petition has already present, been presented to the people that the powers that be, but they said that they're going to use that when the planning commission makes their decision, it went down to the planning commission in this particular instance, that it goes down to the planning commission. And then we, they're trying to hold a public hearing that they've been trying to hold for, well, COVID kind of shut down a lot of public hearings at the moment, but obviously they can do Zoom meetings now and things like that. So things can progress, but the company that was um, trying to get moved in over here is continuing to move forward in the process when they're actually supposed to stop the process according to the the Maricopa County rules and regulations. They're not supposed to move forward until after a specific point. So Hmm. In this particular case, we've spoken to the planners, we've spoken to the mayor of uh, Peoria, we've spoken to, and we've got the support of 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it lead down to the um, the planning commission's decision is what it leads down to in our case, in this particular case. But, you know, in the past, I've, I've had situations where I know that people have tried to um, get help from their congressperson or their senator, and they run into a dead end. They can't seem to get past an assistant or they can't get past um, the front desk, so to speak. And they keep getting stonewalled. I've seen them show up to these people's places. Um, I can't say I've seen it because of, they've told me that they've showed up to this place several times and they keep getting stonewalled. And they're a constituent and they can't get seen to get past that door. They're trying to implement that open communication and they can't get that door open. It's very frustrating. It is very, very frustrating. We work with legislators too um, on both sides of the aisle here. And they also say that it's it's frustrating and they're unable to to help sometimes and don't know what to do. And sometimes they are presented with so many different, like completely different issues and fields that they're being asked to come up with uh, solutions to that they're just have to pick and choose. There's, I don't know um, in this particular case, but I can say it's important to it's important to keep trying to take power and empower people at the bottom up level because even this problem right here where somebody's creating what is it a dump in your community and it's going to affect your homes and your home value and your quality of life and all kinds of things and you don't have the rights to have say in it you don't have say and it's your community that is very frustrating. That is an issue that is is not just singular. It's not isolated in this case. This is a long-standing historical pattern of people giving up their rights to things like this. That now we have to go and ask somebody else's permission in order to take action on. And sometimes you win the battle and sometimes you lose the battle. But in the long term, if we take those rights back, it's better for all issues for for not just us in this long term, but for all of our grandchildren and future generations when they get confronted with all these issues that will definitely come up for them too. Well, and I, I agree with that. And I think that um, it does create a, uh, you brought this up earlier, it does create a commonality between community because, you know, people have lost the... Um, uh, I didn't know a lot of my neighbors until this thing started. I knew my guy across the street. I knew the guy up the street, and um, that's about it. Which is, you know, kind of sad, but it's it opened up the door to more people in the community knowing who everybody was. So if there did something positive come out of that. There is something positive in regard to that perspective because it opened up well five different communities actually. Um, you know, everybody gets to know a little bit more about everybody that's living here. And, you know, I, I grew up in a, in an environment as a kid that everybody in the neighborhood knew everybody. So if you got in trouble, you, you could really know that by the time you got home, you know, your mom already knew about what you did 
three blocks down the road. <laughs> it's like, do I go home or do I not go home? Because everybody kind of knew each other, you know, and it's like, I want to tell your mom. It's like, eh, eh, no, you're not. Yeah. By the time I got home, you did tell my mom. <laughs> so we did get away from that. I think community has kind of, everybody shuts their door and doesn't want to open up their eyes or open up their curtains and they don't want to know who's living next door to them. So it is, it's, that's one thing that I think is very toxic to having a kind of power I'd say is called power with others because you become isolated and no man is an island. And most of these things are not things that can get done by yourself. There's a lot of stakeholders like the issue you're talking about. And when we get into a position where we don't, we don't rely on the people we live around, it's very easy to not interact with them. And if you don't interact with them, you won't have any relationship. And if you don't have any relationship, it's very hard to mobilize. And so the starting is in something like this. You guys are being brought together around a cause. That's fantastic. It's always something that brings us all together, right? It's, it's not always sunshine and rainbows. Every story, every movie, every hero's journey starts with the hero having to leave his world and enter a new one, even though they come back usually transformed. Your community could come back a little transformed, and that could be a positive even if you don't get the outcome that you'd, you'd like. And I think the rest of the, who are, uh, the listeners out here, I think that that's a lesson in coming together in a, on common ground. And I think that, um, you know, if you have an opportunity to get involved, that it's a positive opportunity because, like you said, any opportunity to get involved is can open doors. Do you have any words of wisdom? Around? This whole situation. Do you have any words of wisdom in regard to coming together in common ground or, or about depolarization? I do. I do. If you are not leading, somebody else is. And it may not be in a direction that, that you want to go. There is a something unique about being having a human experience. In that we, more than any other species on this planet, get to take an active role. That life for us is an open-ended book. That we can choose to show up as creative or destructive or kind or mean. When a bug is born, all of the actions and the patterns that they will take in their entire life are already determined. They're fixed through their heredity of genetics. When deer is born, it can basically run and take off on a sprint within minutes. But when a human being is born, we are the most helpless creatures on the face of the earth. That is because we are born fundamentally differently than any other being on this planet. And that is with magnitudes more degrees of freedom. Freedom is not just an idea. It's, it's a need. It's who we are. It's what we do best. You know, if you really think about it, the fact that everything that everyone does, they could be doing freely, makes everything that we do for one another potentially a gift. And to be surrounded by gifts, you know what I call that? Rich. To be surrounded by gifts is to feel rich like people spend their entire lives trying to stuff this hole in their hearts with all kinds of things that just don't suffice. When just being alive and interacting with one another could come with the most intoxicating sense of wonder and gratitude. 
intoxicating like many people myself also have spent many years of my life getting extremely intoxicated because sometimes life lacks that sense that living is intoxicating. The opportunity for us is standing at our door and we don't see it. COVID has taken people out of movie theaters, but before that we would pack into movies into dark hypnotic theaters to have these visionary experiences produced by technology called films. We watch our favorite actors and actresses embark on this journey, overcome all adversity, achieve what they set out to do even in the face of great risk. All the while, the greatest opportunity for meaning and purpose is sitting right here and right now in this moment, and we don't see it. You know, people are complaining to your left and people are complaining to your right. And no one is doing anything, but the problems don't go away. And right now, people look out the window or turn on the TV, the modern day equivalent, and see the world laying in ruins and past the point of no return. What what I want to ask viewers to do is look out that same window and see if you can see an opportunity to make a difference, an opportunity for meaning, to hear a calling, to do something to make the world a better place. Because otherwise, it's a boring and lonely world without people adding to and enriching each other's lives. I was once invited to this think tank on um, utopian societies. It was a very odd invitation, but I accepted. And we sat around and talked about our idea of utopia. And people started with things like, oh, there's no more war and poverty and all the issues I care about are all gone and fixed, right? And then it got a little more, you know, uh, fluffy, like, oh, well, we don't have to eat. We don't have to exercise. Uh, you know, we can't die. We're immortals. It got funny, like, you know, but it got around to me and I just realized like, what would I have to bring to the table in a world where nobody needs anybody anymore? What a boring and lonely place. And my idea of utopia started to change. It started to look a lot like this. And I'm wondering now, today, if people can look out that window and see a little bit of that world that I'm talking about. Because this is it. This is your chance. It's, it's not just that life for you is a gift, which it is. It's that you get to be a gift. Every, I mean, for you, life's a gift. Every heartbeat's a gift. Every breath is a gift. The next time that you go to sleep, you don't have to wake up. The next time you take a step, the ground does not have to be underneath your feet. But when it is, it is a gift. But you as well, my friend, the listener, get to be a gift to others. You have that opportunity, and it is an incredibly intoxicating opportunity. There's nothing like it. There's a science, a research on what happens when someone does something unexpectedly nice for somebody, an act of compassion or kindness. There's a chemical change that happens inside of them. It's, it's, there's a rush of oxytocin, which bonds people together and serotonin, which happens when there's meaning and, and dopamine. People feel good, not just in the person receiving the act, in the person giving it. To give is to receive and not just in the two, in everyone who observes it and three degrees out from them. Incredible. People don't understand how powerful being the change and being the solution can be. You 
have the opportunity through the butterfly effect or whatever you want to call it, but it's very real, to make an incredible impact. When you model a new way of being in this world that people can't even imagine, you are making things a thousand times more possible and likely for others to follow. By doing it, by being it, it's huge. And you think, oh, well, what difference does little old me make? I'm insignificant. And if nobody else does anything and only I go and compost my garden, what difference does it make? But you're everything. And it is everything. Because if you do, the very thing that you think if everyone would do it would lead to the whole world changing, then you inspire people not to do that. They might not care about composting or whatever, but to do something like that, to do the equivalent of that. And then you have what? Then you've inspired people to do the thing that they think if everyone would do it would lead to the whole world changing. And you know what happens as that movement starts to spread? Well, the whole world changes, my friend. And this speaks to a certain kind of change the world type personality right now, by the way. But I need to point out a little blind spot. Forget about changing the world. Why is it not good enough to just change your world and everyone who passes through your world? Why is that not enough? Why do you feel that you are not good enough and what you do is not enough if you're not doing some kind of big thing? change the world. Because this also lends to top-down thinking and problem-solving. This also disempowers people, this change-the-worldism mentality. And if, if I'm not out tackling, tackling world hunger, then I'm not going to do anything is, is an extremely dangerous ideology. It really is. It's death by a thousand cuts. No one's doing anything. And what we need is a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of whatever comes their way in order to not have these issues. But also, we won't get rid of world hunger. We're not going to get rid of death and sickness and old age. We don't have a right to some kind of ideal. And no institution can guarantee these things. We have to take responsibility for our own lives and have the kind of courage that that can withstand reality and truth. Truth that uh, for the things that nobody talks about. Truth that life can be hard. Truth that you get sick, you get old, and you die, and stuff happens. The truth that evil is not out there among the Hitlers and Stalins. It's a potentiality within everybody every single day. And because we project it onto the other, we don't recognize it in ourselves in little moments in the kitchen. <laughs> These truths... If we could swallow the bitter, bitter truths that we're talking about, we would see ample opportunity for meaning and purpose. Ample. And the polarization that we see today would be a lot less possible. It would become a lot less diminished. Because it's not just the other fella. Carl Jung talks about this tension of opposites, right? Where you can hold two simultaneously seemingly contradictory points of view or principles in your mind. At the same time, without it being a threat to yours or you trying to lose the other. And it was only this polarization, this, these poles of yin and yang or whatever, that was the creative force of the universe. As we know, it takes two people for any one person to be here on this planet. Nature knows it very well. 
There's a lot of opportunity here. I'm done. <laughs> Those are some amazing words of wisdom, outstanding words of wisdom. I, I have to thank you very much for joining me on this conversation because uh, I learned quite a bit and uh, you opened my eyes. So I'm hoping that we have opened uh, other eyes out there and helped them to learn and get motivated and inspired by what you have said, because you've inspired me. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I'm very honored to be here on your podcast. It's an incredible opportunity. How can somebody get in touch with you? How can somebody understand your business and, and what, what they can do to contribute to that? For my purpose here on this podcast, they can visit standtogether.org, which is the overarching website for our philanthropic community, where they can find a, a variety of different stories to getting involved in and find a place in and maybe some inspiration and, and maybe some ways to make a difference. Fantastic. Again, thank you very much. I honestly appreciate this conversation. It's one of the best conversations I've ever had since I started this. You're too kind. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this show. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about what you can do to get involved and make your voice heard, you can find more of about Nick and what he does at standtogether.org. That's standtogether.org. I will have a link to that in the show notes and on my website at www.beforeyougopodcast.com. That's www.beforeyougopodcast.com. If you like the podcast and you like what we're presenting to you, please don't forget to leave me a review and support us by visiting any one of the links on my webpage. You can buy me a coffee. You can visit the patron. Coming soon will be the T Public Store for some merchandise unique to One More Thing Before You Go. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.